0: For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be seated.
1: We've been in Romans for a few months now, and if you remember, I said that when school year, the school year came, we would be taking a break from Romans, and that was true, partially. I said we'd be going back to Genesis. That part was a lie, unintentional, uh, as it was, I must confess, that was a lie. We will not be going back to Genesis here uh, in the next couple of weeks. We will actually be taking um, five weeks to go through Matthew 18, starting next Sunday, and we will be discussing what it looks like, uh, life and conflict in the church, and what that looks like, and what Matthew 18 has to say to us about how that ought to look. And so we'll do that for five weeks, and then we're actually going to come back to Romans and finish Romans out before the end of the year. We, as, as we, the farther we got into Romans, the more it seemed, you know what, we just need to keep this Romans cha- train rolling uh, right through to the end, and so we'll do that, and then, and then we will get back to Genesis, and we will finish Genesis. I promise. So that is what we're going to do. But today we are going to finish out Romans eight, and as we begin to look at this passage, begin to uh, maybe begin to ponder the reality that. With the ability nowadays to get news from all around the world almost instantly, in moments really, we are more than ever aware of the problems that, are, that the world faces, that people all around the world face. Wars, famines, sickness, natural disasters. I think about the reality that we have day-to-day stats of COVID and how many people are sick and how many people have died from COVID and not to mention all the other diseases and illnesses that plague us. But more specifically, the issues and the problems that face us, the church, the church worldwide and believers. We're aware more and more of the persecution of Christians around the world And Christianity, as it becomes less and less popular in our own country, in our own communities, we're aware more and more of that opposition that increases in our workplaces and in our cities. And I think with social media, we, it's easier, I suppose, to hear the voice of some people who oppose Christ and oppose Christianity, uh, sometimes very passionately express that opposition. But perhaps in all of this, the most sad piece, the most sad piece to me, what, what, what cuts to the heart the most is that it seems almost weekly that we hear, we see someone who once called themselves Christians and now don't confess Christ. We see people who call themselves Christians who are either caught in or who are confessing a significant habit of sin that's been, a pattern of sin that's been going on in their life. We, we see people who have seemingly given in to the cultural pressure and deny some element of what's been basic Christian teaching for 2,000 years. Most painfully is when this kind of thing lands close to home with friends and family. I went to a Christian college. It's been a few years now, I guess. And it always saddens me whenever I hear someone I went to college with who is either not following Christ, who's openly opposing or mocking something that it seemed they once loved. The question that comes to my mind is, what then shall we say about these things? What, should, what then shall we say about these things? You see, the Roman church that Paul is writing to, Paul himself is no stranger to suffering. He's no stranger to trouble. He's no stranger to opposition to Christianity, right? Now, they know better than us, certainly, what persecution looks like what suffering for Christ looks like. When Paul says these things in in this very first verse, in verse 31, what is he referring to? The troubles that they have? Is he referring to Romans 8, 29 through 30, this wonderful, wonderful passage that declares that those whom he, that God foreknew, were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that that we might be the firstborn, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined are called, and those whom He's called is justified, and those who He's justified, He's He's glorified. I mean, are those the things? Yes, but not only those things. But I think He's referring at least to everything that He has said since the beginning of chapter 5 you see all of chapter 5 of romans through chapter the end of chapter 8 is is a sort of unit in his letter if we go back to chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 what you'll see there is a lot of the same themes that we find here at the tail end of chapter 8 he says He starts that by saying, we're justified by faith alone. And that means that we have peace with God. It means that we have hope in God. It means that God really loves us. Not a love that's based on some redeeming quality in us, but the kind of love that's unchanging because it's based in his unchanging nature because he died for us out of love for us when we were sinners, not when we were so great. But he doesn't leave us as sinners. Paul goes on through chapter six and, through, and seven, and he says he doesn't leave us as sinners. He makes us dead to sin through Christ. He makes us alive to Jesus, alive by the Spirit. He gives us his Spirit who begins to sanctify and work in us. And though we continue to struggle, he continues to work in us through that. And that at the beginning of chapter 8, it says, even still, even though we struggle, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't only justify us, friends, but he makes us his children. He adopts us into his family. And yet, If you go back to the beginning of chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, what do you find there? We shouldn't be surprised that here at the end of chapter 8, we're talking about the suffering that we face. Because back in chapter 5, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The hope we have doesn't put us to shame, not because of anything that we've done, but because God has poured out his love on us, church. And so here's my question for you today. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what kinds of sufferings you're facing, what difficult things you've gone through. But day in and day out, what wins your head and your heart? Is it your suffering or is it God's love? Day in and day out. In your own heart and mind, in the battle that's going on inside of you, what wins the day for you? Is it your suffering and the pain and the circumstances that you're facing, or is it God's love for you? What wins? And so when I ask the question, what then shall we say to these things? Is it God's love over the sufferings? of this present life that you see? Or do you perceive that the sufferings of this life are winning the battle? Here's Paul's point in the end of this chapter, and this is what I want you to walk away with this morning. God's love is unbeatable. God's love is unbeatable. The overpowering, unchanging, reliable Love of God for his children. Let me pray, and let's look into this passage this morning. Lord God, we confess our sinfulness and our rebellion to you. We confess that even when we put our faith in you, that there are these areas of our life where we find ourselves not believing. We find these pockets of unbelief. We bring those to you this morning. We surrender them to you and we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in those areas that you would take our unbelief and turn it into belief, God. Lord, we, we know that there's a lot of difficulties in this world, and it seems to be growing in some places, in some ways. Lord, I pray that you'd give us the strength to face those things, and that that strength would be based in the reality and truth of your love for us when when we were far from you. I pray that we would be revived and refreshed by the the truth of your unbeatable love this morning. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. And so as we look at this, these verses, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, you can divide this passage into two parts. Verses 31 through 34, they give us a series of questions, a sort of lightning round of questions and answers that bring to light the reality that God is for those whom he loves. God is for those he loves. And then it kind of reaches this climactic question and answer in verses 35 through 39. And it declares, Paul declares that nothing, nothing can separate God from those whom he loves. And so I want to first start by taking a look at these these three lightning round questions. And and i summarize them all like this. If God is for us then what are we worried about? If God's for us, what are we worried about? And so the first question I would present to you is this. If God is for us, should we be worried about those who oppose us or oppose him? Paul says, who can be against us if God is for us? And Paul doesn't in this passage deny that there are real and significant opponents to the gospel, and that there are real and significant opponents to believers and to the church. He doesn't deny that. He doesn't deny that it's painful. He doesn't deny that it's difficult. He doesn't deny the temptations that come along with that. Those are real troubles. Yet in verse 35, as it, it will show us, that opposition comes in a variety of places, and it comes in a variety of intensities. But by comparison to God, we have no reason to be concerned. We have no reason for ultimate concern. Those powers cannot foil God's plans. It brings to mind two examples in in church history. I'm sure there's just... A ton of examples, but two examples that came to my mind as I was preparing this message. Uh, The first is William... Tyndale. If you have heard of William Tyndale, his life's goal, the thing that God called him to was to see the Bible translated into English so that the the common English speaking, English reading person could read the Bible for themselves in their own home. It's, It's almost unfathomable to us to think that there was ever a time when you couldn't just grab one of the 20 Bibles you have in your house and read it if you wanted to. That you could just grab your phone and just Google search whatever passage and it would just pop up. But indeed there was a time when the common person could not read the Bible for themselves because it did not exist in a language they could read it, even for the English speaking person. And God put it in William Tyndale's heart to see it translated. God gifted him with this ability with language to be able to do that. And yet he faced extreme persecution. For pursuing that end, he ended up living a good portion of his life on the run across the sea from England and Europe, translating the Bible in secret and then shipping it secretly back over to England to people so they could read it. He saw multiple of his close friends die helping him in this endeavor. And eventually they would track him down and they would kill him. But you know what? You know what he did? He translated the Bible into English and he smuggled hundreds, if not thousands, of Bibles into the country. God did it. God did it. John Bunyan, is another great example. He was arrested for preaching the gospel, kept... From the people from the church he loved for from his own family for over a decade and 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 I imagine he must have thought as he sat in that prison year after year after year that he, he must have prayed god i could I'm a pretty decent preacher. I could do a lot of things for you if you would just get me out of this jail cell. I could preach to these people, I could preach your gospel i could I could go through the fields and through the cities and I could go through the countryside and I could declare the truth of the gospel and how many people would come to know you and how many believers would be built up if you would just get me out of this jail. And yet, the time he spent sitting in that prison, it came to his mind to write the book of Pilgrim's Progress, which turns out to be the second If I understand it correctly, the second most sold book in English after the Bible in the history of printing and selling books. And through it, countless believers have been encouraged and challenged for centuries. There's no way, there's no way he could have ever imagined that God would use him In that way. And indeed, he wouldn't have had time to write the book had he been out of jail and preaching the gospel through the fields and through the cities. Bunyan writes this. He he wrote in one of his other books. He wrote, we could not live without such turnings of the hand of God upon us. We should be overgrown uh, with flesh if we had not our seasonable winters. He says, our seasonable winters, our times of suffering, our times of pain. He continues, it is said that in some countries, trees will grow, but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. It is said that in some countries, trees will grow, but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. Let me tell you, church the pain and the suffering and the difficulty that you face, it may be God's hand turning you and refining you and pruning you so that you can be more fruitful, so that we can be more fruitful for him. Real, spiritual fruit. As we see pastors arrested in countries not unlike our own for simply obeying the commands of scripture that could that could fill us with fear that could fill us with with anger that could fill us with frustration but it doesn't need to because God's love is unbeatable a second question is this, if God is for us, should we be worried about our needs? Should we be worried about our needs? Though verse 35 doesn't start with the word if, it is essentially an if then statement. If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, if God was willing to give up what was most precious, if... God himself was willing to come to earth and die on the cross. Then, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Will he not give us exactly what we need to accomplish the purpose and bring about the ends in which he intends in our life? Paul Phrases this whole verse in such a way as to articulate the inconceivableness of a God, of God lacking adequate provision for those whom He loves. As, can you imagine your children, parents, whom I'm sure all of you make countless sacrifices for? If they came and said and, and pretended like you, you you're not even providing for me my basic. Will you really take care of me? And you're like, do you you have no idea what I've given up for you already? Of of, of course. And we are are flawed parents. I I don't know about you. Maybe you are great at parenting. Uh, I am a flawed parent. My love uh, can often be mixed in with a lot of selfishness. We have a perfect father who's given us more than we've ever sacrificed in our life. And would he not also provide anything that we need? Are you starting to see here... The logic, this bulletproof logic that Paul is presenting to us. If God is who he says he is, if he really has done what he said he's done, if it's based not on my actions, but on God's actions, as Romans has reiterated time and time again, then even though our sufferings and our troubles are quite real, and let's be honest, friends, Paul knows firsthand what it means to not have what we would consider basic needs. And for the sake of Christ, right? It doesn't take too much reading of the New Testament to recognize the, the suffering that Paul went through the physical difficulty for Christ and yet if our sufferings and our troubles seem to be winning i would contend uh, i would i would argue with you, that the problem isn't with God or with God's ability. The problem is with our perception and our understanding of the situation. Friends, God's love is unbeatable. So, if God is for us, should we be worried about uh, those who oppose us? No. Should we be worried about our needs? No. But what? What if our concern isn't something outside of us? What if our concern is something inside of us? What if our concern is is us, something we've done? If God is for us, should we be worried, friends, about our own guilt, about our own issues? Paul asks two related questions that build on each other. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn them? That is to say, those he has elected, those whom he has Chosen to set his love upon, who can bring any charge against them? Now, the question may come up here, but wait a second, Cody, doesn't God love everyone? I thought God loved everyone. You hear people say today, you know, love is love. But in reality, Uh, that's not really a true statement. It's certainly at least not a complete statement, right? Like just to give you a silly example, I love pizza. I love you guys. And I love my wife. All those statements, that's three statements. They're all true, right? I love pizza. You know, that's true. I love you guys. I hope you know that that's true. And I love Amanda, But they're not all true in the same way. They're not all true to the same intensity. Same is true with... And if they were true in the same way, you would say, I've got issues, right? (laughs) Like, that would be a problem. You'd be like, oh, time out, Cody. You got some stuff we need to, to like, talk through here. And yet, when we think about God, we... uh, It's like a different filter that we run that through. There's a sense in which God loves all of creation, but he chooses to set his love in a covenantal and salvific way on his bride, the church. And it it is about this chosen bride that Paul says, who can bring any charge, who can condemn. Now, you might say, well, I, I can't believe in a God who doesn't love everyone exactly the same way. I just, I can't do it. And I think F.F. F. Bruce, the biblical scholar, rightly says that a statement like this doesn't tell us anything about who God is. It only tells us something about who you are. Who God is must be judged by what he has done. What he has done is made clear in his word. His word makes clear what kind of love he has and how his love functions. Rather than our concept of love defining who we think God is, we need to allow God to define by his own character what love ought to be. We must be diligent to consider what the Bible says about God's love. So, after that little short excursion, let me bring it back to our passage. As you can see, that's a passionate subject for me. Anyway, who can bring a charge or condemn? Paul declares God justifies. We know that legally we have been made right in God's sight through faith in Christ alone. Christ Jesus died, it says, and was raised. But then Paul actually takes it up a notch here. If you can imagine that being taken up a notch, he, he does. He says that Christ was exalted to God's right hand, and and he is interceding for us right now for his elect, those whom he loves. So whether, friends, it's your own memories, sins that you've committed, things that you've done that you regret that you wish you hadn't done, you wish you could go back in time and you could change it, whether it's someone else that continues to bring up that past, whether it's Satan himself, Jesus is interceding for you and he is blocking every single Accusation that's brought against his people. You understand? Christ himself sits at God's right hand. He's like Dikembe Matumbo. He's like, no, 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 not in my house. <laughs> accusation, <laughs> accusation, <laughs> get out of here. Ain't happening. point is this, guys. The devil, the world, the flesh, they come against us. Circumstances can be difficult and painful, but none of that takes away from the reality that if you are in Christ, then God has set his love on you. And if he has set his love on you, he is for you and God's love is unbeatable. You can't beat it. I can't beat it. No one can beat it. But one other question remains, and in some ways, it's kind of this climactic question of this whole section. And, and if you grant Paul's logic that God is for those whom he loves, the question that we ask ourselves, or we may ask ourselves is, can something then cut us off from God's love? What if we get separated And, you know, from our perspective, that's kind of understandable because we see people who seem to profess true love for one another one day and then toss it out the window the next day. We ourselves experience strong feelings of love one day only for it to wane on another, right? But what we will see is that Paul's resounding point is that we cannot, cannot be separated from God's love because it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on any earthly circumstance, but it depends on God and God alone who is sovereign over all things. He doesn't change and nothing can stand against his purposes. Nothing. I say, well, Cody, I don't know. Like, I I don't know if you've watched the news lately. I I probably haven't, just so you know. But I don't know if you've watched the news lately, and there's some pretty terrible things out there. There's some pretty rough stuff. Are you so sure? Paul hits the whole gamut of the world's problems. Look at this. In verse 35, is it What about tribulation, distress, persecution? Uh, these words include external and internal troubles of oppression and affliction and the stress and the ang- anxiety and the anguish that, that comes into our hearts that comes along with those things. But God's love is unbeatable. What about famine and nakedness and, and danger? There's, friends, there's no guarantee for us that even our physical necessities or what we deem to be our physical necessities won't be lacking in some way potentially as we follow Christ. There's no guarantee of food and clothing and roof over our head just because we believe in Jesus. And yet God's love is unbeatable. But the sword, what about the sword? What about death, execution, martyrdom? Friends, God's love is unbeatable. Paul hits all the things. In fact, he's experienced all of these things. Well, except for one of them, yet he will Then Paul quotes this passage out of Psalm 44. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And he intends us to understand this single line from Psalm 44 in in the context of the entire Psalm, which, which his audience would have known here's how the psalm goes. I'm just going to summarize it for you briefly. It opens by looking back on all the wonderful things that God has done on behalf of his people in history. And then it, and then it shifts and it begins to detail the current persecution that his people are facing. And, and, and all that ramps up to this verse, verse 22 of Psalm 44. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then and then, whereas usually the Psalms would shift to a confession of their guilt, to a confession of, you know, we're experiencing this suffering because we've sinned against you, God, and we need to repent, and you've been so good to us, and yet we've been so unfaithful, and so God, would you, your mercy be poured out on us? But that's not what Psalm 44 does. Psalm 44 says, no, we've been obedient. We've been faithful to you, God. Search us and see that we have, been committed to you. You see, Psalm 44 is actually upholding their obedience. Their suffering here is not a suffering because of their disobedience. It's not a suffering that's come upon them because of their own sin. It's a suffering that they are having while being obedient to God. And it finishes with this cry for help. God, would you save us again? And I think that this psalm, it shows us a few things. There's a few things that Paul is wanting to bring to the attention of his readers. First, first, that suffering shouldn't be a surprise. God's people have experienced it through the centuries. At all times, they've experienced all kinds of troubles. A second, that we will experience suffering That's not due to our disobedience, but actually is because we're faithful. Indeed, this word in this passage for tribulation, it's what what Jesus says, promises to his disciples in this world, you will have trouble, you will have tribulation, same word. So we see John talking about, and he uses the same word in Revelation. Paul uses the same word in his letters, that we will have these tribulations all throughout, Because we are disciples, but, but here's the big one. Here's, here's the big point that he's trying to bring out that, that the trials we experience, the trial friend that you are in right now, it is not the end of the story. It is not the end of the story. Our hope is in God and we can cry out to him and he is faithful and he will be faithful again because God's love is unbeatable. So is suffering the end of the story? No, he says, no. In all of these things, this time, these things refers to the suffering. Can they separate us from the love of Christ? No, not only that, but actually we are more than conquerors. The word for more than conquerors here, it's actually hyper triumph. It's like a literal translation of it. It's like we don't, just su- we don't just win with Jesus, we super win. I don't know what that means, but we win big, you know? Not only do they not beat us, but God actually takes it and turns it for good. We're more than conquerors. But it's not, it's not us that causes that triumph. It's not some great quality in you and me that causes us to rise up and, and you know, we just had to channel this great inner power and strength that we have in us and we can we can do it. No, it's because God does it. It's because God loves us, because God is sovereign. God's love is unbeatable. And so final answer, can anything separate us from God's love? Paul, what's what's your final answer? Is this your final answer? Paul says, yeah, this is my final answer. No, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love nothing in life or in death, no angel, no ruler, nothing in the present, nothing to come in the future, no power, no height, nor depth. As, he, as he's gotten everything, just in case he thinks, in case I've forgotten something, uh, nothing in all creation. I just, just, this is my junk drawer uh, of, of the verse, you know, like just in case I didn't catch something, I'm just going to throw this in here. Nothing, nothing at all, nada. Friends, I want to remind you that all creation includes you. It includes you. Some of you live with overwhelming anxiety that at some point you will do something that will disconnect you from God's love. I know, because I've talked with you. Some of you live with overwhelming anxiety that at some point you will choose to reject God after having been saved by Him. And while Paul does tell us to live out our faith, to work out our faith, you're concerned that it's your job ultimately to preserve your salvation and to stay in God's good graces of His love. But I, but I ask you, are you more powerful than God? Are you more powerful than God? Friends, God's love is unbeatable. If God has set his love on you, he he will overpower your rebellion. God's love is unbeatable. And so here's the question for you, church, in whatever suffering, whatever trial, whatever you are experiencing right now, listen, you trust God with your forever. Will you trust God with today? Will you trust God with next week? Will you trust God with next month? Tribulation, distress, persecution, sword. Will you trust the God of the universe with those things? Will you look to them or will you look to the peace and the hope and the love of God that are ours in Christ Jesus? Jesus because he justified us by his death and the father has adopted us through faith in Christ into his family. And, and he's given us the Holy Spirit who fuels and guides us every single day. Will you trust in that instead? Will you look to that instead? Well, friends, if you are not a believer yet, if you've not repented of your sin and believed in Christ, then I want you to understand that this, this love is not on you. I want to be clear about what the Bible says. God does not turn your sufferings and troubles and your open rebellion into good things. He doesn't. If he did, it would be like someone breaking into my home to hurt my family and rob them, and me asking them how I could help them. It would be unjust. That said, I've been where you are. And I want you to know that the sufferings that you faced, they don't have to be wasted. If you would repent, if you would believe, then God can take those things. Even the things that have happened before you repent and believe, and you put your trust in him. He can take all of them, and he can turn them for good. He can make you more than a conqueror. Listen, listen to what Jesus says in John, 30, uh, John 6, 37 and 39. He says this. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Friends, how God does this is certainly complicated, but for us today, I want to make it really simple. It it is as simple as this. Come to Jesus, hands open, heart surrendered, trusting in him that he can save you and keep you. And rest assured, he does. He does.